Welcome to the Drop the Mic podcast, where we'll dive into conversations with some of the music industry's most established professionals. Like all of our episodes, what you will hear today has been created and curated by Stanford students who are breaking their way into the music scene. I'm Jay LaBeouf, and I lead Stanford University's Music Industry Initiatives. Whether you're aspiring to launch your career in the music industry, are already a music industry pro, or just curious to learn more, we've got you covered. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get into the conversation. Welcome back to the Stanford Music Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders to get a behind-the-scenes glimpse of the inner workings of the music industry. I'm Nikki. And I'm Enya. And we'll be focusing our episode on the topic of concert touring and live performances. But we'll be adding a bit of a twist by moving beyond a solely domestic and physical context. So today, we'll be hearing from three guests with very different roles within the music industry, first tackling the nitty-gritty logistics of a domestic tour before taking a bigger picture look at international touring, and finally, at the future of live performances given the recent COVID-19 outbreak and continued rise in innovative technologies. First up, we have Greg Patterson. He has been involved in the music industry for over 20 years, co-founding several companies involved with event and artist management, ticketing services, and fan engagement experiences. Until recently, he had been a part of the team at Eventbrite, serving initially as the head of music for several years before transitioning into a role in strategy as an entrepreneur in residence. So my name is Greg Patterson, and up until this week, I worked in strategy at Eventbrite. So back in the 90s, when I was in high school, I was a musician, played, played in bands, things like that. That parlayed in the mid-90s to me starting to book shows. Promoting shows was sort of basically a way for me to further my music career. I realized if I wanted to play San Francisco, the easiest way for me to do that is find a band from San Francisco, give them a show in Sacramento, and then I would get to play a show in San Francisco. And I kind of just did a whole lot of that swapping. And through that, I able to do some touring up and down the coast of California and out to Texas and back. Shocker and spoiler, I did not uh, succeed as a musician. That's why this is the first you're hearing about my music career. But it was fun. It was a good time. Uh, that naturally parlayed into design. And I got a job at a record label, got hired to tour with a friend of mine's band who they, they got pretty successful, so I did about two years of touring globally. So as you can tell, Greg has an immense wealth of knowledge when it comes to managing concerts and live performances, so we started by having him share a little bit more about the logistics behind a domestic tour held here within the United States. He also provided a quick look into how capital-intensive live shows, especially touring, can be. Uh, so I asked a manager friend to send me all the financials on one of his bands. So I can't name the band out of his uh, request, but this is a North American tour. The band was formed in 2012. There's five full-time members and two hired touring musicians. They have three studio albums. They've all charted in the Billboard Top 200. So this tour was 47 shows in 69 days. They drew about 1,000 to 2,000 tickets per night. Their expenses included a bus and one box truck. And there are 14 crew members or touring party. So five of those are band members and nine are drivers, techs, things like that. And the tour grossed $890,000. So this is the breakdown of the revenue. So 49% was tickets, about 37% was merch. They did some VIP and they did some sponsorships. And the sponsorships is, is relatively new. People have been able to get like Red Bull or somebody to throw some money at the tour. So this is where the money goes, you know, $500,000 of expenses against that $890,000 of revenue. So equipment, lodging, crew, transportation, production, the largest one's merch expense. This is your largest risk vector because these are hard goods. 
where you have to make these things, bring them on the road, and if you don't get your numbers right, this will sink your profitability. A prime example is we had a tour going out three, four years ago. We printed half a million dollars of merch for VIPs, and the night before the show started, he canceled the tour. And so in West Sacramento, there is a warehouse with half a million dollars of merch that has a date on it that I can never use for anything. To our benefit, we insured the tour. So we were able to recapture at least the expense, not profit. But this is the sort of thing where, you know, being able to predict and manage your inventory of hard goods is really, really tricky. And then where does the money go from there? So tour commissions, $161,000. So the agent gets 12.5%, manager gets 27%, business manager gets an unregistered amount of money, but they're typically filing taxes and things like that. And the artist gets 59.4%. So the artist's net is $236,000. Not too bad until you remember there are five of them. So the agent is doing pretty well, manager doing pretty well. The person making the least money is each individual member of the band. So they're walking with about 12.9%, $50,000. That's not so bad, but if they don't tour, they don't make money. So that's not a great deal of money. This is like a, you know, pretty much a working band. The reality, the ticketing company is typically making no more than $2.50 a ticket. The other $2 is sort of a royalty or kickback to the venue. So the promoter has built this into their ticketing deal. We have paid for exclusive rights. We're taking on the 250 and they're taking the two. The promoter is also getting $3 of that 25. And then, you know, we kind of go back through the business manager, agent manager, artist expenses and the artist. So on that $25 ticket, the artist is making about $9.65. So we're going to flip script now and go the other direction and talk about from the venue's perspective of that same ticket. So I had a venue send me their stuff. On a show that sells 900 tickets, that's a sellout. There's a $14,000 artist guarantee for this show, uh, plus 85% of backing, which means you sort of have like a door deal, which is like, hey, you get like 50 cents a ticket, or you have a guarantee, or you have a guarantee versus backend or things like that. So to not get too into the weeds on this, this basically just means like, hey, you're going to get at least $14,000 for playing this show. If the show performs above a certain level, we're now going to split everything above that level, 85-15, 85 to the artist. So a $25 ticket, there is a $22,950 gross on this show. Basically, $2.50 goes to the, the ticketing company. The promoter is going to make $5 per ticket. The expenses for the artist are $6.59 a ticket. The show expenses for the promoter to cover their costs is $5.76. And for every ticket sold on this $25 show, the artist will walk with $9.65 to split. We'd like to thank Greg again for participating in our podcast. And thanks to Greg, we now have a solid understanding of how domestic concerts work and how costly they can be. But what about international tours? Next up, we'll be talking to Arthur Fogel, who is the chairman of Global Music and president of Global Touring at Live Nation. We're so excited to have him on the podcast. So let's dive right in. He's been in the industry for 38 years now and has personally managed many of Live Nation's largest and highest grossing worldwide tours. Madonna, U2, Beyonce, Jay-Z, Lady Gaga, and Justin Timberlake are just some of the artists he's worked with throughout his career, and he's received several honors ranging from the Order of Canada to his inclusion on the Billboard Power 100 list for the past seven years. Arthur, just so our listeners can hear directly from you about who you are and what you do, could you start us off with a quick self-introduction? I run the Global Touring at Live Nation, I've been 
with the company since its inception in 2005 and have been in the business of producing and promoting tours since 1981. I started in Canada, based in Toronto, and was involved with shows uh, across Canada. And in the late 90s, or late 80s, actually, started uh, presenting concert tours on a global basis and uh, still do it to this day. That's kind of the overall quickie of what I do. Perfect. Now, could you tell us a little bit more about how you ended up in the music business? Well, from when I was a teenager in high school, you know, I was a drummer and played in a bunch of lousy bands and I just really wanted to be a musician in the music business, not necessarily on the business side, but as I went along and after university was working as a musician, I, I came to realize that I wasn't very good uh, as a musician and I should figure out a different way forward if I wanted to stay in the music business. So I ended up working in nightclubs and then became a tour manager for some artists. And that sort of led into opportunity working for a promoting company in Toronto. That's sort of how it evolved. But my, my original entry point was as a musician. Great. So for our next question, could you briefly summarize the process of planning a global tour? For example, when do you start thinking about what artists to work with or what venues and tour dates to schedule? Well, generally, the discussion and planning for a potential tour could take place anywhere from six months to a year. And basically, you need that lead time to come up with the, the plan with the artist on which territories you're going to play, what the timing is of playing different territories in the world, uh, when they're available to start and finish, what kind of routine did they work by in terms of the uh, number of weeks on, weeks that are for break, et cetera, et cetera. And then you would go out and put together a potential routing for the artist to take them to all these different territories and you know, go through it with them. And at the point that there's a, a sign off from the artist, you would then sort of get into the next phase uh, of planning and execution, which would uh, involve putting the shows on sale and putting all the elements and pieces together for the tour to start some months later. And on that note, we know you've worked with huge artists like Beyonce and Justin Timberlake, who have tons of stops around the world for a single concert tour. So what would you say are some of the key differences between organizing domestic tours and these global tours that are taking place in so many different countries around the world? For sure, in the last 15 to 20 years, global touring has changed quite dramatically. You know, in the early days of doing global tours, there were perhaps 20 countries that might be stops on a tour. And now that number's uh, probably in the 60 to 70 range. And so uh, the world has opened up dramatically for just music and shows, of course. But, you know, everywhere is different. Everywhere has its own uh, idiosyncrasies with respect to all kinds of things uh, for shows to take place and what you charge. And the complicating factor, of course, uh, when you are touring globally is moving all your equipment as opposed to touring in America where you can put everything on trucks and all the people on buses and you just go from one city to the next. But clearly, when you're touring globally, the logistics are much more involved and challenging. Most of your movements are by aircraft or on the water, not in a truck. 
So, you know, there's considerably more planning and elements to deal with on a country by country basis. So how do you really decide what kinds of locations to tour in around the world, as well as what cities you land in for each country that you want to hit? Everywhere can be very different, but you, you can also find that on a domestic tour. I mean, an artist can be able to sell X number of tickets in major markets like New York or LA or San Francisco, but it could be very different in somewhere like St. Louis or Memphis. On a global basis, there's different territories where an artist might be at a certain level, but in other markets, uh, just starting to develop or are not quite a, at that same level. So part of it's, you know, referencing history. If there's no history for the artist, there's individuals that are involved with our company and, and our business that you rely on in terms of their assessment of the strength of an artist. You know, some of them are easy because they're just really big everywhere. Uh, and then there's a number of artists where it's a variable. And so I don't know that there's any sort of complete answer to how you do that, but it's kind of what we get paid to do is make the right decisions to put the artist in the right venue in the right market to sell the tickets. And lastly, in terms of global touring right now, what are some challenges we should be aware of? Well, I think first and foremost was what I mentioned earlier about how the world has truly opened up as a touring marketplace from, you know, 20-ish countries on a tour itinerary to 60 to 70. And that's probably the most dramatic thing that's changed in terms of global touring. There's always challenges. Uh, we're living through an incredible challenge right now as it relates to just living, but also to, to touring and to concerts. But, you know, I think at the end of the, the fact that the, it's become so much easier for people to discover artists and to discover and listen to music, that it's really sort of accelerated the, the careers of many artists much more quickly than used to be the case. I mean, you, you know, certainly when I started in the business, artists might have had some hits on the radio or whatever, but they sort of had to tour and tour and tour to build up their audience and to sort of create the appreciation of their live performances. Uh, but now it happens so much more quickly. And when you think about the last five years, many of the very successful younger artists now, you never even heard of five years ago. You know, Billie Eilish or Ed Sheeran or Taylor Swift. I mean, maybe, maybe a bit more than five years, but you get my point. There's like a whole new generation of major artists that have developed incredibly quickly relative to how it used to be. Yeah, thank you for all those insights, especially on the changes you've noticed as someone who's been directly involved with the business for so many years now. And so before I move on to the next guest, we just want to thank Arthur again for taking the time to chat with us about all his amazing experiences. For any listeners who are interested, there's actually a documentary where you can learn more about Arthur and his work within the industry. So definitely go check that out. The last guest we have today is Bob Mozlowski, who is the managing director of Techstars Music, a three-month startup accelerator focused on investing in teams, solving the world's biggest problems in music, live, and touring. He created one of the first licensed music streaming sites in 1996, and since then, he's had over two decades of experience in product and marketing. Bob has been at Techstars since 2015, and we're super excited to hear his insights on how technology will disrupt live performances, touring, and even the entire music industry itself. So to start us off, could you give us a quick self-introduction? I'm Bob Mozolowski. I'm the managing director of Techstars Music. 
prior to making investments for Techstars in the music space, I was the head of music at Twitter. I did that for two years. Prior to that, I helped run a startup called Topspin, which made direct-to-fan marketing and distribution software for artists. And before that, I was a, a product manager and helped run Yahoo Music from 2006, as I started as an intern, actually, until 2008. So at the, at the point in time when Yahoo Music was sort of the top of the, the online music experience. Awesome. I guess we'll go ahead and knock out our first question for you. So we saw that Techstars is investing in startups aimed at solving big problems within music and live events. Could you tell us more about these types of problems you've seen in live events and especially within the international realm if possible? Yeah, sure. So yeah, you're right. Techstars Music doesn't necessarily invest in music companies. We invest in companies solving problems for music. A big part of that includes what the live experience will look like in, in every aspect, right? Like, what is it like to buy a ticket? What is it like to go to a gig with a supercomputer in your pocket? What is it like to participate with the show? What's it like to be safe at the show and be healthy and be secure? How do you get people in and out? How do you give people more personalized experiences? One of the things that's really interesting in live events is the real disparity in willingness to pay at different parts of the audience. Like, you know, for a very long time, the only sort of range in pricing was back of the room to the front of the room. But it turns out that there are people who will happily sit in the top seats, but who also want to have a pre-concert experience, or they want to have a different kind of food menu, or they want to have a post-concert experience, or they want to take home different levels of merch. And so if you think about merch purchasing, which is you know traditionally measured per head in a concert, the amount of merch purchased is not as closely correlated to ticket price as you would think it would be. Are we giving people, you know, amazing experiences and are we maximizing our revenue potential in a live event that people are finally starting to really dig into and think about? And I think most of the opportunity there is outside the United States because inside the United States, you kind of have a couple of companies that really control the experience. And when you get into sort of like duopoly kind of economics, there's not a lot of incentive to create experiences that are incredible for fans. Um, like, so a big portion of the income from Ticketmaster comes from the fees and, and their clients are the venues. And so the, they're providing a service to the venue around ingress and egress and ticketing and access. They're not driving additional demand there and they're not making the experience better for the fan. They're making the experience better for the venue. That's their customer. Same thing on concessions, same thing on sponsorships. But those revenue streams are starting to be maxed out when you're taking the approach of, there's X amount of demand and we're going to sort of tax that demand. We can sell you a $20 beer. We can sell you a $25 parking spot. We can sell you a $50 t-shirt and you can take a 30% cut. Those are all sort of like taxes on being in between the fan and the artist relationship. The interesting part is that until you can personalize those experiences and add a bunch of value to either the fan or the artist, those revenue streams are kind of maxed out. And so the playing field where you can experiment with that and create new revenue and develop new services is largely outside of the U.S. at the moment because it's more competitive. There's more services fighting for the venue's business to sell the tickets. There's diversity of income and background and willingness to spend disposable income on entertainment. Also, the, the whole world has mobile phones. And so a lot of people are going to gigs with new expectations around using their mobile phones in the event in ways that they don't have sort of 50 or 60 years worth of, of incumbent precedent you know, to overcome. They're just starting from, you know, right now in a modern way. So we're super excited about it. A bunch of our live entertainment portfolio companies right now, though, are in a real pickle because there are no live events at the moment. And so it is both a very challenging moment to be invested in and caring about live events and also one full of incredible opportunity. 
also extending on that, do you have an interesting anecdote to share about maybe a specific investment that has a solution to a problem that you've seen in international or domestic touring? Well, for example, we have a portfolio company in Madrid, Spain called Hello Tickets. A very bad summary of the company would be that it's a secondary ticketer. And that's not inaccurate. Like it is a secondary ticketing company by its nature. But the upside of the company is what they do is they sell tickets to travelers. So there's tons of travelers in the Spanish speaking world who come to the United States to see NBA basketball games, to see Broadway shows and, and large concerts, things that don't travel as well around the world. It's a big part of your vacation and holiday to the United States to see these things. But if you're coming from Colombia or Spain or Costa Rica to have these experiences, like I can book my flight in my local language in my local currency. I can book my hotel in my local language in my local currency. Why can't I book my concert and live experiences in my local language in my local currency, right? And so a big way they get access to inventory to put those packages together for people is by using ticket aggregators and, and secondary services to do that. But they move a meaningful amount of tickets and a meaningful percentage of every night in any major live event is people who are on holiday or on vacation who are making that a big part of their trip, right? It's like there's a very small percentage of people who are season ticket holders who go a lot. And there's the vast majority of attendees who go once or twice a year and they do it as part of a holiday or they do it as part of a, a vacation. Super vibrant business, one of our best positions, a company that inside the United States, people don't even think about. Mm, yeah. And switching gears a little bit, given COVID-19, I feel like that startup must be struggling a bit to organize concerts here in the US for tourists. And so I guess on that note, have you seen the live and touring industry pick back up anywhere internationally? Or does there seem to be a general avoidance for live events worldwide? You know, if you're an artist who has global demand and it turns out you can safely play concerts in South Korea, global artists with demand will go play concerts in South Korea, right? Artists will travel to places where concerts are safe and lucrative because on sort of a windfall basis, it's the largest revenue stream they have in terms of, you know, mass amount of dollars in and shortest amount of time. So if you have territories on the globe that are safe and can hold live events in ways that can make artists and fans comfortable and fan demand returns, artists will go where the fans are. That, that's one of the truths about anything in investing or working in the music business is to realize that the artists go where the fans are, not the other way around. And so many people who are interested in working in entertainment or, or music um, or events, they look at it like, oh, if we get these artists, all their fans will come to us and that'll be how we grow our user base. Um, and the reality is, is that it actually works in the op exact opposite way, which is that fans get aggregated around cool experiences that add value to them and they feel like they're participating and doing something cool. And then the artists go there because that's where the fans are. And that's the way it's always worked and the way it will sort of always work in the future. So I think there's a big opportunity culturally and startup wise for companies to create new experiences around live events in territories that are safe and have done a good job with contact tracing and, you know, particularly the Asian countries who have done a great job with this. I think you will see a bunch of Western acts that have fan bases in Asia spending lots more time in Asia and Asian companies creating cool experiences there that could then get ported to the U.S. or to Europe. On the note of these artists traveling internationally to where their fans are, we had a chance to talk to some folks from Live Nation and formerly Eventbrite. And mm -hmm. basically they were sharing a lot about the complexity and logistics and everything that goes into physical touring. And so I guess what are some tech solutions that you may have seen designed for touring? Yeah, so because of the way we deploy capital, I'm deploying a little more than a million dollars a year in 10 companies. Our job is to get companies started, you know, be their first institutional investor, validate them, hopefully help them skip the pre-seed stage and go right into a large seed rounds. The 
the, the companies you're talking about, about changing the fundamental experience of a concert, that's a pretty capital intensive business with a bunch of sunk capital up front. Like Naver in Korea, I don't know if either of you are K-pop fans, but K-pop is sort of leading here, right? Like Naver's got a company called VLive mm-hmm. where they're spending almost a million dollars per production and bringing in top K-pop acts and selling 35,000, 40,000 tickets to an online concert. But the concert is designed for streaming only. They're not making a concert film. They're not doing it in front of an audience, but they're doing a full intentionally amazing production with green screens, with fan interaction, showing fans faces during the show, pausing and interacting with people. And with the idea of doing these things live as events, that's an interesting business. It's not the same as selling 500,000 tickets on a tour of Japan or, or Korea or the West Coast of the US, right? So the volumes of dollars are different. But the intensity and the opportunity for ancillary transactions and upsells and merch bundles and all of that sort of stuff is there. The, what I think is more interesting are things around not porting these in real life experiences to online, but creating new experiences altogether. Music's in an awkward phase right now where I feel like music just finally decided, oh, there's live streaming, we could do that. And then they took their existing products and tried to convert them to live streaming. And there's a bunch of kids and gamers and other folks who have been live streaming for years going, yeah, that's not exactly how you do it. Like you don't just one way broadcast for an hour. You have to interact. You have to talk about stuff. You have to go on a journey. Things have to happen. Accidents have to happen. Serendipitous things have to happen. Sometimes the stream's goofy, but the volume of time you have to spend online and the amount of things you have to do are so much higher and so much more intense than I think the Western music business realizes at this moment. And so I feel like there's a chance for something new to pop up inside of there that's less about watching music, which I think is a real trend. Like people are watching music more often than they're just listening to it. But I feel like it needs to be more participatory. And so that's where I feel like there's cool stuff happening, but I haven't seen the answer, I guess. To come back around to your original question, I haven't seen the answer and I'm not sure that we're in the stage where it gets discovered yet. I think there's four or five people starting something that everybody's going to think is silly and goofy and it's going to grow up and it's going to have a whole different set of stars and a whole different set of success stories. Like if you're a club act or you play theaters, you play 800 to 1,000 or 800 to 2,000 tickets a night, like you're the hardest hit because that's real money to you and real income. And you're not going to get back on the schedule until 2021 second half because all the dates are full. You can't play stadiums because those are locked up by the sports teams and the global planetary superstars. And so those are the artists who are going to try to embrace live streaming and setups and, and they're not going to be very good at it because they do the same show every night on repeat. They're not really interacting with audience. I feel like there's going to be a real culling of those artists. Like a bunch of those artists' businesses will just end and they'll be replaced by new artists who are of the moment who can interact with fans online in a, in a meaningful way. And so I think the opportunity to invest there is not in converting existing businesses and evolving it. It's in replacing stuff that's going to die out because it couldn't make the jump. We're also interested in this new trend of virtual personas or virtual characters, where studios create these characters that will perform songs written by human artists. I guess the closest example to it would be like Hatsune Miku, Gumi, etc., the Vocaloids that have become so popular in Japan and also globally. And we've seen that Techstars has also been investing in similar companies creating similar products here. Could you elaborate a little bit on how you see these virtual personas and characters disrupting the current music industry right now? Yeah, I love this space. We just invested in Strange Loop here in LA, who have for the last four or five years been the world's greatest concert visuals team. 
They've done Flying Lotus, Kendrick Lamar, The Weeknd, Bonobos, Toki Monster, everybody. Their visuals are a thing and they have a style. And they're converting their business from sort of a production and tour agency to a full-on product company where they're going to build their own characters and they're going to have a roster of characters and they're going to develop them with artists. To tie this to my previous comment of like, there's a whole swath of artists who are going to have to see their businesses go to zero and and they won't be able to adapt. I think a lot of those people could get rescued by the virtual character. More and more, the most powerful companies are acquiring artists that already have demand and then they have machines that enhance that demand. So you bring me a fire and we'll turn it into a, a bonfire, right? But it already has to be lit. The core competencies of the major music companies are turning things into global hits. They're not getting people to care about it from the beginning. That's sort of the internet's job. And so the interesting part is, is like people who go through that process, just like startup entrepreneurs or business people, the artists learn a lot and they learn through failure and they learn through attempts at things that don't work at their sort of highest skill, they get dropped, right? It didn't work. We sunk, we spun a bunch of money on this isn't going to happen. Like I think a bunch of those artists will come to virtual characters in sort of the next year or two because their other revenue streams will have gone away and their talents will be at the top of their game. They'll be writing the best songs they've ever written. They'll be able to tell stories and suddenly they'll have a vessel to do it through that the market hasn't already judged. And you know, if you ask any major label A&R exec, they'll tell you they have songs they know are hits that they don't have the right vessel for. They don't have the right artist for, they don't yet have the right recording for, they don't have a way to turn that thing into something that becomes a global business. And one song is usually not enough. Like sometimes you get lucky. One song, one tiny persona was enough to launch that into a sort of a global business. The question will be then what comes next? What comes after that? The ability to have a character where you can source that material from lots of places and multiple artists can be behind a certain character over time, right? In the same way that multiple actors can play a superhero or you can make multiple movies and reboots of franchises. That stuff is really, really valuable and allows people to show their talents off. So I think this moment like takes away a bunch of revenue streams from a bunch of sort of what I would call middle-class artists and the virtual space creates new opportunities for some of those artists to change and and redeploy their talents in, in cool and interesting ways. That's definitely something that I don't think many of us have really thought much about before. So thank you again, Bob, for all the new insights you've shared with us today. Before we wrap up the episode, we know many of you listening are students aspiring to enter the music industry. So each of our guests have left us with a final piece of advice to pass on. Again, here's Greg Patterson, formerly of Eventbrite, Arthur Fogel of Live Nation, and Bob Mazalowski of Techstars Music on building a career in the music industry and beyond. It's easy to sort of look back on a 25 or 30 year career and see that like, oh, you founded some companies, you've done some things, and it's all worked out, and it seems like this really well-executed plan. Um, but what's usually not in there is all like the failures and missteps and things like that. And I think that trusting the process is a huge part of it. Making connections, uh, being consistently not an asshole, answering the phone when people call, all those sort of things are super important in your career. So as you sort of meet people through this process or any process, trusting that over time, just like investing or any sort of thing over time is where all of the real benefits are. It's not something that you're going to do in a single meeting. There's not a coffee shop or an A&R guy walks in and all of a sudden, you know, a star is born and you're a huge celebrity. It's consistency, it's reliability and it's trust. You know, having left the job, you end up having all these conversations with folks uh, after spending four years at Eventbrite. One of the interesting things happens when, when you leave a big company, when you, you start to work into something and you've built um, a role, an executive role somewhere, the minute you leave, you quickly find out 
who tolerated you and who really, really did like working with you. And I know a lot of folks who end up losing a job in a big A&R role or management company who the minute that they're not a gatekeeper of access, nobody wants to talk to them again because they're just an asshole and they were just tolerated. And the outpouring that I've had this week from people that have reported to me or worked for me, people I've worked with over the years, colleagues at other companies, has been pretty much overwhelming and really humbling to see that, you know, different people you've touched throughout your career and uh, you did some things right. So all that to say, if you take anything away from this, it is trust the process and, and trust that you're going to build a good career. It's not going to happen as fast as you want. Trust me, nothing in life does, but it will happen, you know, if you keep at it. The worst thing you can do, in my opinion, is to try and be a specialist in our business. If you don't have the sort of broad understanding of how everything works and fits together, then it's going to be difficult to move up to a position of sort of overseeing these kinds of things. You know, invest the time and effort to sort of learn as broadly and watch as broadly as you can about how the business operates and what's involved because that'll give you a much more solid foundation to grow in the business. The world has, you know, has become a much more wide open place to travel and to learn. So I think at the end of the day, if you start somewhere and start learning different aspects of the business, you can find those sort of areas where you can devote more time to sort of gaining an understanding and, you know, the global part will come, but I think you need to start simple and start in your comfort zone and then expand it out as the opportunity presents itself. If you're graduating next year, you're leaving school into like on paper, the weirdest, worst economy in history, right? I think that's awesome. Here's why. Everything about high achieving type A elite university students is I'm measuring myself against the job I get, the prestige of where I go to work, what my resume looks like, how much money I make, what my salary is. And that is a trap. Like it's totally a trap. Your job is to build a career, not get a job. Like your goal should be, be happy, make an impact, do something cool on the planet that makes you happy and allows you to live up to the potential of your own talents, which are formidable. You're coming out of amazing programs at amazing universities. It would be a real bummer to like say no to things that put you closer to the career you want and the achievements that you want because of the dollars, because the dollars are what you need the least, right? The dividends are so much greater in the, in the long run. And in this job market, it'll just be even more competitive for the most prestigious jobs. It'll just be even harder to win the salary game and win that number. But the reality is, is like the things that you really want to do with your life are wide open and there's no one to tell you no anymore. So I feel like this is a moment where entrepreneurship and investing in yourself and your creative pursuits, you know, like it's, it's the best use of your time because the other piece is going to be even harder and take you further away from what you care about. And if you try to like, oh, well, I'll do this for two years and I'll come back to it when I have some money saved up or whatever, the answer is no, you won't because your life will move on and your perspectives will change and your requirements will change and your risk tolerance will go way down because you'll invest in things, you get comfortable, you do other stuff. So my advice to anybody in this moment right now is to forget about getting a job, forget about what your salary is, forget about what your peers care about and go spend all of your energy trying to get closer to where you want to be, you know, four or five years from now. Thank you again to our awesome guests, Greg Patterson, Arthur Fogel, Bob Moslowski, for coming on to our podcast. 
We hope you've all gained at least one new insider takeaway regarding the music industry, and a huge thank you to our professor, Jay LaBeouf, in our class, Music 150P, The Changing World of Popular Music. Make sure to check out the other episodes to learn more about the music industry and everything that happens behind the scenes. That concludes today's episode of our podcast, Drop the Mic, Music Industry Conversations. Thank you to all of our guests for spending their time with us and sharing their amazing insights on global live touring. We'd also like to thank Tony Rodriguez for composing this season's theme music. Tune in next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern for some valuable advice from some of the most accomplished executives in the music business, a.k.a. the successful people making it all happen behind the scenes. Some guests featured next time are the head of urban music at Columbia Records, Felicia Fant, and the former CEO of Warner Records, Cameron Strain. We're the Stanford students that help put the season together. To hear all of our episodes, check us out on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stay up to date with everything we're working on, including a playlist that features all of our musical guests from season one, plus our social media accounts where we post sneak peeks of what's to come, check out our website at dropthemiccast.com. This has been Drop the Mic. Thanks again for tuning in. We can't wait to share more with you next week.